Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to The Soul of the Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. This week on Soul of the Nation, we continue our series on white Christian nationalism by welcoming Rachel Kleinfeld, a senior fellow in democracy, conflict, and governance programs at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And in America, we have a long culture in which it's been heroic for white men, particularly to wield arms to protect their communities back to the revolution. And so picking up on that language, you know, 1776 and and those kind of rallying cries make people feel that they're doing something important, make people feel like they're doing something for their country that's patriotic and for their community. Those are powerful forces, and we need to counter them, not just with condemnation, but with something more positive, because those people are signaling that they need a cause that has meaning in their life. I'm very pleased to welcome Rachel to our podcast today. So glad to be here, Jim. Thank you. Let me start with a question I like to ask my my guests. Just, Rachel, how is your spirit these days? How's your spirit? You know, I'd say it's decidedly mixed. I have a, a young family. I have two little girls, and they're always a joy. Um, but honestly, I'm a little worried about raising them in our current, uh, our current state of America and the world. So a little bit mixed. Well, having two kids myself, they're older now, but I can certainly re- resonate with that. Worry about the future of your kids and all the rest now for me, it's future grandkids at some point. Um, cause this is long-term, all this is very long-term. It's immediate. There are immediate threats facing us. And I think 2024 is going to be a critical milestone one way or the other, but these are long-term issues. So I'd like to ask you about this column uh, you wrote in in January, this past January. After the midterm elections in 2022, a lot of people, and myself included, were somewhat, at least somewhat relieved that many of the politicians who spread Trump's big lie that the 2020 election was stolen, the election deniers, a lot of them were defeated at the ballot box. But you've written that there are still deeply troubling trends in our democracy. In this piece, you note that violence and intimidation are altering our politics in other ways as well. Tell us about that. So, you know, we're really lucky that the 2022 election went the way it did and that uh, election deniers, people who really didn't want to accept the results of the public vote and how citizens wanted their country to move, mostly lost in states that would have mattered for the national election for the presidency. But most of them won in um, other states, and that means the majority of them actually won in states that were more solidly red. And so we have a lot of people, and, um, and by a lot of people, it's also lopsided across the parties, which matters for how our political system is set up, who really want to believe that um, their will matters a little more than how our democratic system works. And what we know from other countries is that this is how you lose democracy when you're so afraid of the other side winning that you're willing to uh, let your side take a little bit of liberty on the, on the rules so that you stay ahead of the game. And we're starting to see that. So in 2022, we're lucky that we didn't have widespread violence. But we also had actually quite a lot of threats against Liz Cheney. Liz Cheney couldn't campaign openly in Wyoming because of the number of threats against her, against many other candidates in the Republican primary and also um, some in the general. 
and against election workers in Arizona. And we've just started to normalize this level of violence as if running for school board, you should expect to get just vitriolic, hateful um, mail in your email inbox. Or if you're running for mayor, you should expect people to give you death threats, which is where we are now as a country. We shouldn't expect that. Those people are our neighbors and they're people who um, we need to run. We can't run a democracy without people running for office. So we need to dial it back and not accept where we are right now. You also talk about the casualties of violence include the people who are choosing not to run for office. Uh, the threats have risen, not only risen tenfold in the last few years against members of Congress, but they've skyrocketed against mayors and local office holders. Uh, and a, you cited a 2021 20, poll by the National League of Cities finding that 81% of local leaders have experienced threats of violence. And I was struck as a parent by this line where uh, a school board chair in Rochester, Minnesota, whose kids implored her, Mom, they're going to kill you. They know where we live. When you say skyrocketing, how much is it skyrocketing and who's being impacted by this? And so this is uh, maybe key election deniers lost in some critical, perhaps swing states going forward. But at the local level, it sounds like political violence and the threats are really increasing and causing people to decide not to run, especially you said parents are deciding not to run because of their kids. You and I both have kids. So this is quite extraordinary. Yes. So we're still trying to wrap our heads around the numbers um, because America just hasn't hold for political violence uh, before. It, it's all pretty new. There's an organization that's recently started looking called Civic Pulse um, that's working with Bridging Divides Initiative and the Anti-Defamation League to start looking every three months at school board officials, local elected officials, election officials, who are the people who uh, carry out elections, health officials. So you're real local government folks. And the numbers they found in their first poll, which is all they've done so far, were really quite chilling, you know, well over a third, almost two, almost a half of most of those offices were experiencing high levels of threats and harassment. They were anonymized polls, but so many people wanted to talk about their experiences that they're actually sort of breaking that cone of silence and asking people, do you want to talk about this? Because people are feeling like they can't do their jobs, whether it's getting flu shots into all of our arms in the fall or whether it's um, running for school board. And these are pretty thankless jobs anyway, to be completely honest. I mean, I thought about running for school board of my kid's school, but it's hard. You have lots of evening meetings. You don't get paid for these jobs or you get barely paid. You know, these aren't fun. And so if you add on death threats um, and your children are scared and they're followed home from school, we're not going to get people to take these roles. And that's what we're starting to see in the Civic Pulse data is people are saying, we're quitting our jobs early. We're not running. We're not um, running for re-election. The people most targeted are women and minorities, and especially, especially minority women, but also a good number of white men and Republicans as well as Democrats. So it hits everyone, although it's hitting some groups more. So if those candidates are not running for office, uh, who is? You cite the Institute for Research and Education on Human Rights found that uh, you know 12% of all state lawmakers and 21% of Republicans were part of extremist groups on social media. Yeah. So what we're seeing now is something that we've seen in other countries, which is that we still have a lot of good people running. We have a lot of people who, uh, for reasons um, not much fame and glory and, and not a lot of 
good reason other than public service are just trying to run and, and do the right thing for our country. But we're also seeing more and more people who have really extreme ideologies, much more extreme than the average American, who are running with that as their basis. What we see in other countries as that happens is that you hit a tipping point eventually where good people who don't want to be surrounded by people like that run less and less. When Theodore Roosevelt ran for his first office, he would have to sneak out of his house because everyone knew that if you were in politics, you were corrupt, you were um, of a lower class than Theodore Roosevelt was, you were kind of not considered a person in polite society. And so our future president had to kind of hide. We see that in lots of countries where politics switches to people who are uh, violent or corrupt or really deeply ideological. We're not there in America. We have a long way to go, but the trend is not good. I often write about the danger of the us and them uh, polarization, but you demonstrate in this article um, uh, how how the them, if you will, have been, as you say, dehumanized and made less than human, uh, not people, uh, as Genesis has made in the image and likeness of God, but less than that, and and they're they're demonized and dehumanized, and that leads to you're right how Democrats and Republicans show these attitudes toward justifying violence, but that changed quickly. You say in 2020, in January 2020, 41% of Republicans, I'm stunned by this, agreed that a time will come when patriotic Americans have to take the law into their own hands. And a year later, after January 6th insurrection, 56% of Republicans agreed that if elected officials will not protect America, the people must do it themselves, even if it requires taking violent action. How did What happened? How do you explain this dramatic shift? So leaders play a big role in normalizing violence, and you really can't get around it. Leaders that are political leaders, like former President Trump, media leaders like Tucker Carlson, who's beloved of many, many people. If you go to you know, I, I live in the Southwest. If you go to parts of East Texas, Tucker Carlson is on 24-7 just everywhere you go. You know, this sort of, of rhetoric of, of threat and demonization and violence normalization, it scares people and it makes people feel that they need to take action and that it's heroic to take action. You know, sadly, I used to work in national security. And when you look at terrorism all around the world, terrorists believe they're taking heroic action. Um, they think that they're trying to save their communities from culture that is rotted in some way. Often um, they're trying to make their communities more pure. You know, that gets back to iconoclasts fighting against Catholicism in the Middle Ages. This sense that you're the hero allows people to do really bad things. And in America, we have a long culture in which it's been heroic for white men, particularly to wield arms to protect their communities back to the revolution. And so picking up on that language, you know, 1776 and, and those kind of rallying cries make people feel that they're doing something important, make people feel like they're doing something for their country that's patriotic and for their community. Those are powerful forces. And we need to counter them, not just with condemnation, but with something more positive, because those people are signaling that they need a cause that has meaning in their lives. What this demonstrates painfully, again, is how, how white supremacy is at the core of a lot of this, as patriarchy. Uh, and so 
it could lead to becoming no longer a nation of laws, but a nation of mobs. And you have a really interesting finding uh, where, which the political violence in the United States has been greatest sometimes in suburbs where Asian American and Hispanic American immigration has become, has been growing fastest and particularly in heavily democratic metro areas surrounded by Republican dominated rural areas that becomes the big polarization now, urban and rural. And, and in these areas where white flight, as you say, from the 1960s, is meeting demographic change with immigrants coming in or and, and social contestation becomes critical in these often politically contested swing districts. And it, I was quite struck by how you say most of the arrested January 6th insurrectionists hailed from these areas rather than from Trump strongholds, uh, not all from Alabama, but some from New Jersey. Not surprising when you think of it. If you're surrounded by people who mostly think like you, even if you don't like the dominant culture, you feel somewhat comfortable and you have control and agency over your governorship, your mayorship, and so on. Most people around you probably share your politics. But in these areas of contestation, where people who look different are coming in and coming in faster, people feel threatened. And you're right that race is at the heart of it. Race has been at the heart of a lot of um, fights in America for a long time. Gender is also extremely apparent. If you look at people who are willing to justify violence, it's actually hostile sexism that makes them more willing. Those two things are highly linked, though. People who are feeling that way toward women often also have those feelings toward racial minorities. So we know that's at the heart. But it's not just that these people are horrible, racist people to be condemned. It's, I think there's a lot of Americans who are feeling threatened for a lot of reasons. And their leaders are telling them this story, the great replacement theory story. And they're saying, you're losing your job. Your kids are dying of opioid deaths. You're um, seeing your community kind of get bypassed. And all of these are being caused because these elites in urban areas, which is kind of a byword for race, or these Democrats are bringing in uh, minorities and women, and those people are getting ahead of you. That's a really potent story. It's not a true story, but it's a potent story, and it has enough kernels of truth that people believe it to explain their plight. And those people, at least some of them, have better angels as well as worse. And um, calling on those better angels before we go down a further path is, is important. Say more about that, because I often use that language too, uh, how Trump has exercised our worst demons. or They're already there. They've been there for a long time, but he's uh, exacerbated them. And it's, it's worst demons and better angels. That's really the, the spiritual struggle underneath this political struggle. Use that language. So say more about that. So I think it is a spiritual and a, and a political struggle. I think a lot of people are substituting politics for spirituality. And you see that in um, church attendance numbers and all sorts of things. And, and whether people pick their pastors or, or pick their uh, Fox News host as the person giving them their, their theology. Um, you know, Americans are facing a huge amount of change. Everyone in the world is facing a huge amount of change. I and mean, we just created computers that appear to be as smart as an awful lot of us. You know, it's very scary for a lot of people to go through a lot of change. Some people like change, but a lot of people don't. And when you're scared and you're facing a lot of change and you're facing a lot of stress, we just went through a global pandemic that is a huge, you know, we'll be reading about that in history books for the next couple hundred years. 
that's a lot of stress and people are looking for comfort and people tend to find comfort in their own groups. That's just how we're wired biologically. There's nothing wrong with that. What gets problematic is when you not only find comfort in your own group, but condemn other groups. And that's where leaders come in and they start saying um, that that's the story that you should condemn other groups. But the left also bears some responsibility here because instead of the left saying, gosh, people are under a lot of stress and a lot of strain and they're facing a lot of change and we need to help with that adaptation and help them feel comfortable. They're just being condemnatory. It's not easy to, to welcome people who are uh, acting as if they're racist, but it's not just race and it's not just misogyny. It's also just change and helping people fi find comfort and change is something that we can all um, have a little bit of grace to do. And otherwise, the left is just pushing people toward these groups on the right that are very happy to welcome them and bring them into more and more extreme language. So whether you whether you like extending grace or not, there's another side to this that is very happy, happy to welcome people and pushing people into their arms is not good because those white supremacist groups, those violent Christian nationalist groups, they're very real and, um, and they're all over the country. In fact, you get down to it very practically, which I really appreciate in your long journal piece, about uh, four factors uh, you name that are elevating the risk of election-related violence. Name those four factors. Explain those four factors. Sure. So what we know is that when countries have a lot of political violence, it's not just that people hate each other. In fact, it's often not that they hate each other, particularly more than in other countries at all. What you get are highly competitive elections where those elections can shift the balance of power. We last had this during Reconstruction, during that period. But for long periods of time in American history, one party controls Congress, one party wins the presidency for a while. It's not these razor thin margins where very small shifts can make a huge difference. When you have razor thin margins, the, the willingness to kind of push on identity really matters. It also matters because our partisan divisions are more based on identity now than ever before. We've lined up more by race, by uh, urban versus rural by religion and whether you believe in religion or not. So it's pretty easy to just look at someone and sort of guess their political party based on how they dress and their race and where they're living and so on. You might be wrong sometimes, but you're more often to be right. When you have that many identities that line up, it lets you trigger many more threats that threaten your whole self because um, all your selfhoods, all your different identities are together. It's not that you're a white person who's also a Democrat, who's in a union, but you're a, a little bit um, uh, uncomfortable with people who, who look different. All those things now line up in ways that make it easy to trigger identity threats. We also have in America electoral rules that let you win by exploiting these identity cleavages. So about 30% of the Republican Party aren't economic, low-tax, uh, low, small-government Republicans. What you had in 2016 was a lot of people who believed very strongly that Christianity was the basis of being American and that being white was the basis of being American, leaving the Democratic Party and moving into the Republican Party. But those previously swing voters... Uh, also wanted economic redistribution. They wanted more government giveaways and more government support. So the Republican Party now has a much more homogenous group of people who, who are more male, more white, and so on, but who don't share the same economic uh, beliefs that they used to. 
So it's much more in the Republican Party's interest to push on identity to bring their groups together. The Democrats are still very, very heterogeneous. They can't use that quite as much. And then the last thing is accountability, that if you don't have strong constraints on violence, you get more violence. And particularly if you have a government that seems to condone violence um, or security services, police and military who might condone violence, you get more violence. I want our listeners to really hear these clear um, four factors. One, a highly competitive election that could shift the balance of power where everything is now said to be at stake. Two, this partisan division based on identity. And you show how uh, a lot of Americans used to have multiple identities, and now it's all focused on a single identity or a tribe. And third, that electoral rules that enable winning by exploiting these identity cleavages. It's, uh, it's identity politics, if you will, that's, that's ex- exploited. And the fourth factor being whether there are constraints, whether uh, there are uh, uh, dependable responses to make people, perpetrators, believe they'll be held accountable for violence or not. I mean, these are really clear factors I want people to look for and watch, particularly in their own in the electoral calendar, but also in their own situations. You don't just leave it at what's dangerous. You point out five key areas of interventions that could help diffuse uh, the threat of political violence in the United States. What are those five key areas where we could actually combat this and even maybe overcome it or even maybe start to heal it? Right. So I think the good news in America is that we're not too far gone. The bad news is we really need to pay attention to the warning signs. You know, Abraham Lincoln very famously gave a speech called the Lyceum speech in um, 1838, so 23 years before the outbreak of the Civil War, where he saw what was happening. And he said, America is not going to die at a foreign hand. If this country dies, it'll die by suicide. And he said he gave that speech after um, a really uh, particularly bad lynching and race riot that had just happened and him seeing these kind of clouds on the horizon. I think we're in a, a not dissimilar place here where uh, we're not in you know, 1860 with a civil war right, right around the corner, but we're in a place where we are a quarter century earlier and we can change this trajectory, but we really need to. So in terms of what we can do, the five factors I listed, and they're based on what we know overseas about political violence, are increasing election credibility, making electoral rules better for um, reducing violence and enhancing democracy, policing, uh, prevention and redirection of people that are, are violent and political speech. And, you know, I can get into each one of them, but uh, they're, they're sort of well-known factors that work overseas and that um, should work to, to deal with some of these problems here in America. Yeah, let's get into some, some of those in detail because I think they really kind of frame what our response So what do you mean by election credibility? So uh, America runs pretty darn good elections, but our elections are the most um, splintered of any country in the entire world. We don't run a presidential election. We run hundreds and hundreds of local elections. And those local elections tend to be run by disproportionately women at the very local level, often using old computers. They're volunteers often. And, you know, there's problems with cybersecurity. There's problems with, do you have a paper tail? There's problems with just distrust. 
And there's just human error when you have a lot of volunteers doing things. You know, do they turn the electricity on right? My, my mother leaves the washing machine unplugged and then calls a repairman. Um, that happens in elections too. We need credible elections because right now the distrust of our elections, even though they're quite good, is so high that we really can't afford small mistakes the way we, we used to. And so uh, various laws that um, provide a paper trail, proper training, give proper funding so that you don't need private funding to make sure that election workers have pens and so on. You know, just sort of these basic things are really important. What about policing? You talk about policing as one of the key areas of intervention. Some people are uh, afraid of uh, the police, certainly in my class at Georgetown yesterday, it was about policing. Uh, so certainly people of color are often uh, afraid of the crime around them and afraid of the police around them too. And then there's all these studies and articles about police, uh, you know, moving to, to, to the right or even being members of some of the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys groups. So policing and whether it's done fairly and whether it intervenes in political violence is pretty crucial here, right? That's right. So I work on police reform all over the world, and I work with police that are much more violent even than American police. Um, we, violence from police is very highly correlated with how violent the publics are. When you have publics who are highly armed and uh, violent, then, uh, then citizens put up with a lot more violence from their police. So those two things go together very closely. In America, um, the public is very highly armed and quite violent, and so are police. And police are also under a huge amount of trauma and stress. Uh, they, you know, they put up with, with a lot. Well, we know that people who have been in trauma in wartime and in other uh, situations are much more likely to be abusive themselves, are much more, uh, they're, they're quicker to get the fight or flight response and um, go into emergency mode where they will pull the trigger. And so the people who are supposed to be policing us and protecting us are highly triggered individuals who are scared and they're taught to be scared. Police training right now really emphasizes the fear of, um, of what can happen to them, the number of police casualties, which are actually lower than the number of roofer casualties, um, but they're, they're highly emphasized in police training now in America. And the, that sense of threat further builds the adrenaline in these police. So we've created a really bad system. And as you've said, the minority population is particularly put upon because they're scared of the police for reasons that are pretty darn obvious to most of us now, I think. Um, but they also are scared of crime. They're the most victimized by crime and they want help with the crime. They don't really want the police to go away. That, that tends to be um, actually a very small percentage of minorities and of very, very progressive white people. If you actually look at the polling of most minority communities, what they want is good policing that gives them dignity, that de-escalates situations rather than escalating, that allows nonviolent protests, you know, the kind of thing that everybody would want, honestly, in a democracy, a, a lack of brutality from the people they count on. We could really do a lot by changing how we train police in this country. We could also do a lot with uh, reducing the number of guns in this country because the police are reacting to very dangerous streets. So let's end on this political speech question, which you have mentioned before, and you have at the end of your how to counter these trends. I, I often say these days that the trajectory of American politics now 
is fear to hate to violence. And one leads right to the other. First, the fear leading to the hate, the dehumanizing, the the making of those uh, threats into enemies who are less than human. And that results in violence. So that trajectory of, to me, fear, hate, and violence kind of uh, describes what we're moving into in this country. So how do you feel about that trajectory? And and what? how can political speech uh, leaders, how can leaders uh, who say they want to be our leaders uh, deal with that? So I think you're absolutely right. If you talk to psychologists, they say that anger is a secondary emotion and it, it tends to happen to mask uh, a feeling that you're, you lack agency, that you lack control. And so you get angry. People are fearful. They're sad. Um, they're lonely. We have a, a real epidemic of loneliness. And uh, they feel like they lack a lot of control over their lives. You know, it used to be when I, when I was a kid in high school, I used to work on cars with my boyfriend. And back then, you could understand cars, right? You could go under the car and change the spark plugs and what have you. Who can work on their car nowadays? They're all computers. Um, that kind of change has happened over and over and over. And people feel a real lack of control over their lives and over the lives of their kids, and they're searching for control. And when people search for control, they kind of lock down. They get less flexible. They get more scared, more angry. We're seeing that as a country. And so one thing we can do is for leaders, all leaders, religious leaders, business leaders, um, you know, your small town hardware store that's the gathering spot for that community has a role in this. It's not just Joe Biden and, um, and Mitch McConnell. We need all the leaders to be a little more reassuring and a little less blaming. Um, It's hard to ask the politicians to do that because they win elections by blaming. But the rest of us can remind each other that we're still communities. We still have main streets. We still have people who walk their dogs of both political persuasions. You know, just take it down as a a temperature um, and remind people that we're all human beings. And the, the more that we start addressing the fact that people need this kind of community, especially religious leaders addressing that sense of isolation that can lead to fear, the, the more that we'll start healing um, and start recognizing the humanity in, in one another. It's not easy to do. There are things that we really deeply disagree on, but democracies exist to deal with those deep disagreements in a peaceful manner because the alternative is so horrible. And I think it would behoove us to remember just how bad the alternative really is. It's not our side winning. We're a 50-50 nation. Our side will never win, whichever side you're on. Even if you win one election, you'll lose the next or you'll win your state, but you'll lose other states. That's how our country is. So we can't win this. We have to find a way to get along and we have to get along by taking down the temperature and reminding each other of our humanity. So given that, you um, you you lay out your warnings are as practical and I think they're revealing and alarming uh, and and very clarifying. Given all that, are you hopeful that in fact we can get through this with these interventions that you describe and 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 really I, I love the focus on leadership at all levels at the end. Leaders have to lead and they have to lead by intervening in this all these trends toward political violence. Are you hopeful that we can get there? You know, uh, a number of years ago, I hosted a family for dinner at my house. The The son had been the mayor of a part of Caracas, kind of the Brooklyn of, of the capital of Venezuela. 
and had gotten chased out of the country um, under a lot of threat of violence by the government of Venezuela. His parents were middle-class people. His sister was you know, studying journalism in a university. He escaped across the border in disguise, made his way to America, and they were basically rendezvousing at my house for dinner. Um, I was a couple months pregnant, and I was serving people dinner, and, um, and we were all chatting, and the parents were so sad. They felt like they were middle-class Venezuelans. When they were growing up, their country had been a strong democracy. It was actually rated as high as American democracy on all of the scoring that we do internationally. They've been a long-term democracy in Venezuela um, and a pretty wealthy country, a middle-income uh, country with a lot of resources. And they felt like in their kid's lifetime, now they might never be able to see their son again unless they came back and forth to America. They could, and, if, and when they were going home, they were worried they were going to be picked up by the police. They weren't but they were worried about it. So you can really lose democracy. And uh, Venezuela is not the only country that has lost democracy. It's being lost all over the world right now. India just moved to partially free. Um, according to Freedom House, I'm on the board of Freedom House. Uh, Hungary has moved to partially free. A lot of countries are falling right now. America has a lot going for it, a whole lot going for it. But honestly, I mean, I'm a mother. I always come back to that. You know, I feel like I'm the mother of a of a teenage boy who's starting to use a lot of drugs, and he's an honor student, but he's really going in a negative direction. And you think, gosh, you've got everything going for you. You've got a loving family. You've got strong background. You've got a lot of smarts. But boy, if you keep on with this, where you end up is not under my control. And that's kind of how I feel about our country right now. Well, that's a good uh, warning and a calling at the same time. I just want to thank you for uh, what you've written, what you're saying, what you're doing, and for this conversation with our listeners. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's a real pleasure. For more Soul of the Nation updates, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review, and follow me on Twitter at Jim Wallace if you like. Blessings for the Soul of the Nation. Thank you all.